Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. Uh, We got a big show today. A lot has happened since we had our last episode, including several high-profile opt-outs in the world of college football among prospects that are likely uh, at least guaranteed first-rounders or probably at minimum first two-rounders. Huge, huge names. So before we get into that, uh, EJ, you're here with us tonight. Uh, I heard you say earlier you got a little beer for us. I know you you got that snobby Pacific Northwesterner uh, taste in beer. So what do you got with you tonight? Hell yeah, we are representing snobby Pacific Northwesterner taste in beer first and foremost. I have a beer from Hales Ales in Seattle, one of my favorite breweries. It is their Palladium Pale Ale, and if you don't drink things that say pale ale on them because they're pale, you should really try them. Big developments in pails over the last couple of years. Lots of flavor. Some of them are not very pale at all in terms of color. Um, but this is their Palladium Pale. A um, little over 6% by volume and uh, quite delicious. So I'm going to crack this puppy and get to it. Um, splash beer on my microphone while I'm at it because, yeah, I've never <laughs> done that before. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. We get to talk about a little college football, but then we are going to dip into some young QBs and what yeah. we can expect from them in 2020. Yeah, I got a Belvini 12 Doublewood myself, uh, if you've ever had it before. Uh, it's kind of one of, like, the... Hey, man, say, whatever you do on your own time. <laughs> oh, God, I just got that. Oh, you're the worst. I'm not, I'm not drunk enough for this yet. Um, it's Belvini 12, uh, specifically the double woods, one of kind of like the hallmark scotches, I would say that every home bar should have. It's one of like the, the main sherried space sides that anybody who likes sherry space sides is going to have, you know, that, um, and it's, it's not quite as fruity as maybe some other sherried scotches that you've had. Um, like Arbolor 12 is probably like cranked up to 11 in terms of fruitiness uh this is more kind of on the McAllen spectrum where it's just kind of lingering in the back you still get some light peat to it but it's very very well balanced so if you're not super into the fruit uh but you still want a little bit of it uh, i would say Belvini is right up your alley just an excellent excellent whiskey 
one of my favorites. Haven't had it in a while. It's just been kind of sitting on my on my shelf there. So decided to whip that out tonight while we talk about um, some huge news in college football. We had a lot of big name players opt out for the 2020 season in favor of just starting to train for the draft. I, I'm assuming this means they can also start hiring agents and making money for their likeness now since they're not playing anymore, but that's a legal question that somebody else is going to have to answer. But uh, right off the top, the big names you're going to want to know here are Rondale Moore, Purdue wide receiver, who is just a, a yards after catch machine, one of the most explosive weapons in the whole nation. Micah Parsons, a linebacker for Penn State, who's just kind of a do-it-all stud on the outside. He could rush the passer. He plays the run. He could cover a little bit. Love Micah Parsons. Rashad Bateman, who, believe it or not, was the better wide receiver at Minnesota last year uh, over Tyler Johnson, and he was likely going to be probably a late first, maybe early second-round pick. So that's a, a huge loss to Minnesota. Gregory Rousseau is probably going to be a top-10-ish pick. Uh, kind of a tweener between a pure edge and a defensive tackle. Think kind of like Malik McDowell without the baggage, but in terms of like physical profile and just utter dominance at multiple uh, spots along the front. Uh, great, great player. Raw as hell, but great player. Uh, and then Caleb Farley, is it Fairley or Farley? I'm not sure. Farley. Um, Farley, who was uh, the other corner at Virginia Tech, which I know you and I love Bryce Hall uh, a lot. And and Farley's another guy that's probably going to go pretty high in next year's draft, in addition to a whole bunch of other notable players. But those five are are really the big names so far. And the thing to keep in mind here is, as far as I know, there's no real deadline as opposed to the NFL, where there is a deadline for opting out, like these guys all across college football, all these players that are likely going to be high picks, um, they can opt out whenever they want to. You know, if they get two games into it, they can decide like, eh, I'm not feeling this. I'm going to go train for the draft. Kind of like we saw, you know, uh, Nick Bosa do, where he got hurt early in the year, his last year at Ohio State, could have uh, come back later in the season if he wanted to, but he's like, eh, I'm going to shut it down. I'm already a first-round pick. I'm going to go train for the draft. He did that. He went in the top three or whatever it was. So there's nothing stopping these guys from opting out later if they want to. So these are not going to be the last uh, uh, high-round talents we see do this. EJ, I want to get your first reaction to um, these first group of five that opted out and also um, how you feel about potentially a flood coming after them uh, with a really, really loaded 2021 class on the way. Yeah, it's a strange dynamic brought to us. Thank you, COVID. Um, Everything is sort of upsetting the apple cart this year. And we're going to start to see more names do this. This is the first wave. This is the top of the first wave or the crest of the first wave. These All five of these players were players that you were going to see in first round mock drafts who were going to be talked about in top five lists at their position. These are notable guys that have said, "Mm, we're just not sure about it. There's always some uncertainty. Could be injury, could be a change in system. Those usually aren't enough to push a player over the edge, but with COVID and questionable health protocols that we've already seen at the college level in terms of multiple guys coming down with COVID after spring workouts at multiple schools, these guys sort of weighed that in the balance and said, you know what? Um, I'm done. 
I'm not doing it. And again, the major difference between them and the NFL, they're not under contract. They're under scholarship. That's not a contract. They're not getting paid for their services. They can't even make money off their likenesses, as you alluded to. And they said, you know, with all that and you throw COVID into the mix, it's enough uh, to knock me out and I'm going to go start training for the NFL because that's where I'm bound to end up. We can see this throughout the rest of the year. Um, we could see entire teams defect. We've had uh, an entire conference come down, uh, the Pac-12, and players band together and say, we're not going to play. If certain things aren't addressed, they put together a list of demands uh, that, you know, understandably, I think, went over like a lead brick. Uh, I fully <laughs> support their efforts. Um, but look, the NCAA has not been, quote unquote, fair to its athletes for a long time. This has been a very one sided relationship. The NCAA makes billions. It makes sure that uh, athletes can't get much more than a free meal and only a free meal from their university and nobody else. Um, can't make money off their own likeness and can be sanctioned for any number of very strange offenses. This is a terribly one-sided relationship where all the money and power is on one side. And when the other side, the lower side of that arrangement, in this case, the players stand up and say, okay, we want our fair share. Uh, there's, there's going to be warfare, right? There's going to be a hard pushback. We saw some ugly situations pop up, um, early around the Pac-12 declaration, specifically at Washington State. Um, one of their wide receivers, Cassidy Woods, has declared he's on the list. Um, wasn't necessarily a first-rounder, but um, sort of ran afoul of his coach there, the new coach at Washington State, who basically said, so are you with this player's movement? And he said, yep. And he said, well, that's going to be a problem. Um, so this is definitely a thumb-on-the-head sort of approach. I don't think we could expect... Uh, much more from the NCAA given its history and how it treats athletes. So yeah, again, nobody's all surprised sort of, by this. No, nobody should be surprised. You're absolutely right about that. If you've been paying any kind of attention over the last, oh, I'd say 20 years, um, the NCAA is not necessarily pro-athlete. It is pro-money. And if you get between the NCAA and its ability to make money off you, you are not going to be a popular fellow or uh, gal. So yeah, these are the opening shots of, uh, you know, COVID affecting football in the draft. But in a larger state, um, sort of, it's another lever to open up this discussion about athletes' rights in the NCAA and whether or not they deserve a greater share of the revenue. I, I will say this, our second topic for the night, all these, you know, second-year quarterbacks, uh, they got out of college at the right time and they got into the NFL at the right time because this, the current group, of rookie quarterbacks is is going to struggle without an offseason and all the the college quarterbacks that may or may not get a season this year are going to uh, be massively set back in their development so all, all these uh all these second year quarterbacks we're talking about tonight uh the the timing could not have been better for them to to get their true rookie season in while they could yeah and that's from a scouting standpoint we'll have a lot to talk about this year you know no senior tape but also no junior tape on a lot of these players and junior tape um is typically one of the years where you see the largest jump right guys starting to get playing time and maybe got a little bit as a sophomore started to make a dent and then you get their full year of junior tape and you're like wow they really developed you know they came into spring ball and earned the starting spot and this is somebody to watch for next year when they're going to be a senior and, and possibly get drafted well we're going to be 
deprived of that junior tape for a whole class of athletes, as well as the senior tape, um, which is going to make their junior tape, which they put down last year, uh, all that much more valuable. But a lot more projection, a lot even more uncertainty, if you can say that about the NFL draft coming this year, uh, because the entire process is kind of turned on its head. But uh, with that, we want to talk about young QBs in 2020, guys who've been in the league for a year and they're coming into their second year. What can we expect? So we wanted to take a look at this and really come at it from two directions. I'm going to take a look at how the QBs are set up heading into the season, really focusing on three things, coaching stability, the surrounding cast, and the familiarity with the offense they're going to be running. And then Brett's going to look at what he's seen on film, breaking down these players from a sort of mental processing and X's and O's standpoint, where they are in their development that way. We figure if we come at it from both ends, uh, we can give you, uh, the listener, sort of a broader spectrum of what to expect from these players and uh, hopefully give you a well-rounded perspective on um, really the next generation of quarterbacks coming up in the NFL. So the players we're going to talk about tonight are Kyler Murray, Daniel Jones, Drew Locke, Gardner Minshew and Dwayne Haskins. Uh, obviously, a lot of different situations, but we're just going to start piling through those. Uh, starting with Kyler Murray, Arizona Cardinals. Um, in terms of coaching stability, I'm going to say best of the bunch. Cliff Kingsbury showed some real promise and creativity as, as a play caller in his first year in the desert. Um, this duo is the only stable duo heading into year two. That is coach uh, and quarterback have remained the same offensive system has remained the same uh they are the only ones on this list to enjoy that stability at both spots so that puts kyler murray in the driver's seat in terms of having um the smoothest runway especially in this covid shortened off season uh of all the guys we're talking about surrounding cast oh sorry brett we don't mean to keep picking at this scab but um <sighs> damn did it you we're doing this again did you hear that Arizona stole DeAndre Hopkins from Houston uh, for a song? No, that wasn't stealing. That was just getting mugged in an alley. Yep, and leaving bruises. Well, they did. Arizona ended up with DeAndre Hopkins, probably future Hall of Famer. Um, in addition to that, they picked up a good-looking rookie tackle in Josh Jones. They still have Kenyon Drake, who's a great fit for their offense at running back. They added one of our favorite late-round runners in the draft, Eno Benjamin. And Kyler's cast is looking up. Um, you know, the only shortages here are really a stud receiving tight end and probably one more good solid interior offensive line. And then this thing would be lights out as it is. It's improved from last year. Uh, he's got plenty of targets, his offensive lines slightly improved. And again, expect that playbook to be opened even a little bit wider. We saw some really fun stuff out of Cliff and Kyler in the first year, uh, expect more wrinkles and for them to sort of dive even deeper into the fun stuff that Cliff Kingsbury's got in that playbook now that Kyler's got a year under his belt. But uh, with all that said, with that with that grand setup, what do you see from an X's and O's standpoint from Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury? So Kyler Murray is already elite at a few things. I'm not saying he's an elite quarterback overall. Like there are some things he needs to clean up. I feel like. Um, Sometimes he kind of gives himself up a little bit too easily when he's under pressure, and I kind of want him to use his mobility a little bit more. I understand he's not trying to get turned into pink mist out there because he's not the biggest guy, but sometimes I'm like, damn, Kyler, can you just 
can you just run? <laughs> you know, like you're you run four four. Like you can get Use out of the that. wheels. Yeah, Use the wheels. Yeah. You know, because when he turns on the jets, it's like, whoa, okay, that's different. You know, but uh, sometimes I felt he was a little bit uh, too safe with his running ability. Weirdly enough, um, which I, you know, whatever. That's a feel thing. Maybe he'll kind of open it up a little bit as he as he kind of gets more time in the NFL. But as a thrower, uh, he was elite in terms of ball placement outside the numbers. Um, his fade is just gorgeous. And his ability to throw it up with air and put it exactly where his receivers need it, outside the numbers, you know, where, where throws are more difficult. It's one thing if you're really good at work in the middle of the field, um, you know, where you can see leverages and depth a little bit easier. Uh, but if you're able to work with pinpoint accuracy outside the numbers, and especially 15, 20, 25 yards down the field outside the numbers from the far hash, I mean, he's got special arm talent. And so part of the reason why they grabbed DeAndre Hopkins, because DeAndre Hopkins is a dominant receiver outside the numbers, especially working on fades, which Kyler is phenomenal at throwing. So the recipe here is getting DeAndre isolated outside. They have a slew of of good slot receivers, because Larry, even at his age, is still effective in the slot. Christian Kirk is effective in the slot. Um, and then they have a, a couple guys that I feel good about working outside on the other side of DeAndre, like uh, Keyshawn Johnson, Andy Isabella, maybe, but uh, and obviously Hakeem Butler, who I liked a lot coming out of Iowa State. But the, the big thing is get DeAndre isolated as a true X receiver outside where you can beat up press coverage. And then from there, it's just him and Kyler reading leverage. You know, if you're playing stack technique, you're throwing it back shoulder. If DeAndre gets on top of him, you're leaving it deep and DeAndre's going to adjust no matter what. And with a quarterback that accurate where it's – I've used this metaphor before. It's not just about throwing it uh, to the right neighborhood. It's about throwing it to the right house in the right neighborhood. Kyler's going to do that. And this is going to be a truly special connection in the same vein of Watson to Hopkins. Like, it's it's going to be just like that, and I'm talking immediately. So that was the trade of the offseason to me. And this, this Cardinals offense, again, we're talking about year two, consistency in the system, which is so important in this year where you're not getting a true offseason. Not to mention the fact that Kyler played, um, you know, with this kind of system and terminology, even go back to high school. So it's not, it wasn't really new for him last year either. That was part of the reason why he started so strong. So I, I expect huge, huge things for him. You know, they've improved the offensive line. They've improved the weapons around him through trades the last couple seasons. Uh, this this offense is going to be pretty insane, and I personally can't wait to watch it. Yeah, I'd say we're both looking at Kyler Murray and seeing an arrow pointing way up. Um, way tons of up. talent. <laughs> yeah, tons of talent. A coach that understands and knows how to use it will allow him to play to his strengths. They've again, as you as you pointed out, added players around him that add to that system. Not need to be coddled or or sort of schemed in another way but actually fit very well into what they're trying to do um those are the best moves and we should see him pay very early dividends plus they got eno benjamin so you know that's all they need i know eno's <laughs> eno is our guy Eno is our late round runner we were we were really excited to see where he went we we actually thought he would go earlier um but he ends up in a very good place and uh you know running back is a very high wear position Kenyon drake's been real solid there but uh if he ends up missing time i i would expect great things out of eno benjamin so we'll see 
but maybe expecting slightly less great things. Uh, let's talk about Daniel Jones at the New York Giants. So coaching stability, he's got an entirely new staff led by Joe Judge. Uh, Joe came from a long tenure with the Patriots, eight years there. Um, there's undoubtedly going to be an adjustment period. Jason Garrett's in town as the offensive coordinator and as an NFC East fan. Uh, you may like that or you may fear it, depending on your perspective of what he was able to do with the Cowboys. Um, yeah, the basic, the bottom takeaway is it's new. It's completely new, different system, different coaches. Um, in terms of surrounding cast, the Giants lucked out in the draft and snagged not one but two quality offensive tackles, Andrew Thomas uh, from Virginia and Matt Pert from UConn in the early rounds. Um, anything they can do to bolster the line and give Jones more time is a plus. Um, behind that, look, Saquon Barkley's a stud who can help relieve a lot of pressure as Jones finds his way in this new offense. Evan Engram is a threat at tight end. Wide receiver is okay uh, with Sterling Shepard and Golden Tate, who are good. Austin Mack, who is okay. Behind them, there's not a lot. It's a little surprising in a year when there was so much wide receiver talent in the draft that they didn't add any more pass catchers. Um, but they've got good talent. It's not that the cupboard is bare. Um, but if you're, again, trying to help a young quarterback, stacking that um, roster with weapons, uh, and especially pass catchers, is a great is a great strategy. Um, they went with keeping, keeping him upright and stacking the offensive line first. In terms of familiarity of the system and playbook, we don't know a ton about it. It is new. It's a new system for Jones. Uh, that we do know. Judge having coached the wide receivers at New England is probably going to bring some of that system with him. It's notoriously heavy on wide receiver site adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily great for a quarterback uh, that is learning. We'll talk about whether or not you think that's a good fit. I'm not sure it plays into Jones' strengths, but you recently did a film room completely dedicated to Danny Dimes. Uh, what do you think about that? So the, the, the good point you made about the side adjust, because I'm assuming that Joe Judge is going to bring a little bit of that Earhart Perkins flair that's been in New England for literally decades now. Um, I'm assuming he's going to bring a little bit of that with him, uh, maybe in kind of incorporating it into what Jason Garrett's planning on doing, which I have no idea what Jason Garrett's planning on doing, because he hasn't been an offensive... I mean, he's he's been involved in the Cowboys offense, but he hasn't been a true offensive coordinator all seven days of the week in a long time. So I'm not quite sure what his offense is going to look like. But I would assume, to your point, that Joe Judge is going to incorporate a lot of the different side adjusts that he likes um, into whatever Jason Garrett's trying to do, particularly with the slot receivers, where you could have four different reads uh, for the number three receiver, you know, when I say number three, I mean, you're, let's say you're in trips, you're counting from the outside in. So it's number one, number two, number three, number three is going to be your like Julian Edelman type guy. Uh, and that position is very hard in this offense because again, you're, you're running one route that can turn into four different routes, depending on, you know, if the mic is walling you off or, you know, if you get a safety that's 10 yards off, if you have a corner and press, like again, you're running different routes depending on what the coverage is. Uh, so it, it can take a little while to learn both for the receivers and for the quarterbacks, depending on how heavily Joe Judge is going to lean into that. So it's of, of, of utmost importance for Jones to get on the same page as Golden Tate and Sterling Shepard and all these guys that are playing these positions because they have to be able to read defenses the same way at the same time. And that's a lot to ask. It, it really is. Um, now, I also like the point you made about bringing in the offensive tackles because 
I, I understand there was a big movement among Giants fans to, to go after Isaiah Simmons, but they could not go another year without addressing offensive tackle on this team. You know, Daniel Jones's pressure dropback rate last year was 41.7%. So 40, a little Ugh. over 40% of his dropbacks he was being pressured. That was fourth highest in the league among all quarterbacks that started at least three games. And there was like, what, 40-plus of those? So he was under pressure all the time. And not only that, but his adjusted time to sack average, meaning like how, you know, of his sacks, how long do they typically take to happen, was 3.12 seconds, which is really, really quick. Uh, that Like that's right up there with the, the statuesque quarterbacks like Jared Goff, Matt Ryan, Brady, Rivers, all those guys that just can't avoid a rush. And so it, not only was he pressured a lot, but when he was pressured, he was getting sacked. And when he was getting sacked, he was getting sacked quickly. He wasn't escaping. And he's a good athlete. We know he's a good athlete. So what that means is he wasn't seeing the pressure and he wasn't giving himself a chance to get away from it. So this all ties back to the offensive line because now you're bringing in Andrew Thomas, who's a phenomenal pass protector, and you're bringing in Parrott, who isn't as well developed, but he's certainly got tools. Uh, and Parrott might not even start. Like We could be looking at um, Cam Fleming as a starter immediately because Solder opted out. Um, so again, they need to bring in these tackles to hold off these pass rushes as long as possible because Daniel Jones is not going to feel them, and he's not going to escape himself. You know, the guys that are mobile and feel pressure well, you know, like Drew Locke was, for instance, who we're going to talk about, was well over four seconds in his average sacks. You know, Murray was over four seconds. Deshaun was over four seconds. Lamar was over four seconds. Rodgers, Dak, all of these guys, even Josh Allen was higher because not only could they sense pressure, but they could sense it quick enough to get out of the way. So investing in the offensive line was protecting Jones from himself because he cannot sense the first wave of pressure and he runs himself into pressure. That's part of the reason why his pressure dropback rate was so insanely high because he runs into it all the damn time. So it's protecting him from himself. So I really like that pick, but I, I can't necessarily assume that he's going to get better at sensing pressure in year two. I, I hope he does, but I can't assume he's going to be. And not to mention his, uh, his his deep accuracy is like the polar opposite of what I talked about with Kyler, where Kyler's able to place it on the exact shoulder he needs to deep down the field and outside the numbers. Jones sucked at that. You know, his his completion percentage on deep balls it was like 28th in the league. It was like 25%. It's crazy low because even if he could technically throw a catchable ball, he was putting it on the wrong shoulder. So his deep accuracy was not very good. He wasn't very good at sensing pressure. He's going into a new system that's very heavy on side adjusts and takes a long time to get chemistry. Like, I, he's got tools, and he's a tough kid. And I, I really like him as a person, and he's smart and all, all that stuff. Like, I get that. But there's problems here that are hard enough to solve when you have an actual offseason and continuity in the coaching staff, and he has neither of those. So I don't really know what expectations to have because he has literally everything schematically stacked against him. And I, I can hope that he shocks me and proves me wrong. But historically speaking, um, I don't expect him to. Yeah, I would say our, our arrow is uh, firmly in the middle and, and might be faltering towards the downside. I had somebody come at me... Uh, having a discussion about this situation about Joe Judge coming into to the Giants they were obviously a bit of a Giants fan and they said 
well, well, look, there's a there's a new staff in Green Bay last year, and they came out of the gate raring. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, huh? There's something different between Green Bay and New York. I can't think of what it is. Um, oh, right, right. A uh, basically Hall of Fame quarterback who has a decade worth of experience. Uh, you know being able to make up the gaps and who is a decent athlete and can uh, especially move away from pressure Uh, might not be the fastest guy, but definitely feels pressure, understands pressure and can step away from it. Um, Maddeningly. So as a bears fan, Um, (laughs) but I thought, you know, that's, that's sort of one of those half-hearted arguments where you think it all looks the same, but you missed the really important X factor. So I would say that the jury's out on this one, we hope, uh, for all those struggling Giants fans out there that that everything lines up and they get off to a fast start, but I would say most indications, I would agree with you, um, are sort of stacked against that. So moving on to a different situation, heading out west, Drew Locke of the Denver Broncos. Um, Coaching stability, Locke heads into year two with a very solid brain trust of offensive coaches at his side, but they are new this year. So his new OC is Pat Shermer. Um, Mike Shuley is his quarterback's coach. Combined, they bring 51 years of NFL experience between them. And then if you add in Mike Munchak leading the offensive line, you're up to 77 years of NFL experience. That's an incredibly veteran group. Uh, Three quarters of a century of NFL experience uh, between three positions on the staff. So while it is a different um, setup of coaches, Uh, They are a very experienced set of coaches and um, have dealt with a great many quarterbacks. So I would say that's a decent footing, even though, again, it is a new staff for him to work with. The surrounding cast. We have talked about this. Denver is a drag racer's dream on Mm -hmm. offense. Locke is going to be throwing to Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant, Deshaun Hamilton, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, Alberto, all while he's got Philip Lindsay and now Melvin Gordon in the backfield behind him. That is a very talented group of offensive players. They stacked that cast to try and keep up with Kansas City, and we will see if they know how to use all those pieces in unison. But um, if they can't, it is not the talent's fault. Let's talk about that because there are a lot of talented guys in that group. The offensive line's a little bit of a concern. Um, OT Juwan James is one of the NFL players that has opted out for the year, and anything, again, that detracts from keeping Drew Locke upright for a little bit longer is a bad thing, so it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, in terms of familiarity with the system playbook, uh, different playbook, but uh, I imagine that Vic Fangio, the head coach, is going to say to Pat Shermer, hey, we had a lot of things that worked last year. Keep those. Um, and of course he'll put his own modifications spin and language on that as most um, coaches do Um, but I would imagine they would look at Drew Locke's performance from last year and say we really want to keep as much of that progress as is possible because the offense could be scary good Uh, you just finished a Drew Locke film room episode what do you think about this combination out in Denver so the the coaching staff and the talent around Drew Locke, I would argue, is better than any of the other, uh, any of the other second year quarterbacks, even over Kyler, um, and that's saying a lot because Arizona has a lot of talent and some good coaches around Kyler. But when you look at the receiving core with Sutton and Judy and Hamler, specifically when c- compared to say New York, they've got three receivers already that I would take over. 
any of the Giants receivers, and that's including Darius Slayton. Like I'm, I'm ultra high on KJ Hamler, so I know that's saying a lot. And some Giants fans would be like, "Oh, I don't know. I like Darius Slayton. I like Darius Slayton too." Uh, but I have like monstrous expectations for KJ Hamler. So I mean, the fact that they have this much receiving talent, um, and not to mention the offensive line talent, other than right tackle, because Juwan James uh, opted out. You know, we love Reisner. We love, love Cushenberry. Uh, Graham Glasgow, I always mess his name up, Glasgow, <laughs> who they got from Detroit, is a good guard. Uh, Calvin Anderson, we don't really know what he's going to be at right tackle, but at left tackle, Garrett Bowles, I, I had somebody um, mention this to me recently who's more plugged in with Denver than I am. I'll say that. Uh, and that's there's a reason why you see Garrett Bowles tends to play better towards the end of the season every single year. And it's, from what I was told secondhand, a conditioning issue in that he tends to not be super well conditioned at the beginning of the year. And then all of a sudden he gets into shape and he starts playing like he was supposed to play when he was drafted in the first round. Uh, Which, when you look at his pattern of play, steadily improving towards the end of the year every single year and then dropping off in September the next year kind of makes sense. And from what I was told this year, in a contract year, he is in shape, uh, really good shape. And that you could potentially expect him to be playing like December Garrett Bowles in September for once. So that also bodes well for Drew Locke, because if you can get December Garrett Bowles for an entire season, that's a pretty good left tackle, in my opinion. So uh, also when you just look at the, the coaching staff that you mentioned around him, you know, Sharmer is a great offensive coordinator. Munchak is a great offensive line coach. You know, Vic, I think, is going to end up being a good head coach. Like, there, there's a lot there for Drew Locke to work with. Um, now, schematically speaking, I would say that hopefully we can see Shermer use all of that receiving talent that I mentioned to become more aggressive. Uh, Rich Scangarello was not a super aggressive offensive coordinator. Um, he wasn't, even though Locke himself was not an aggressive quarterback, it's not like Scangarello was helping him out by giving him a whole lot of opportunities to be aggressive. So I think that Shermer is going to um, do a lot of what he did for Daniel Jones, which is finding new and creative ways to get into four verts and you know give him one-on-one matchups down the field and really show off these receivers. Uh, and, and we remember Drew Locke in college was an aggressive quarterback. So I, I hope that we see him go back to being aggressive and really, you know, use the horses he's got in the stable. And I, I think Pat Shermer is going to do a lot of the same stuff he did for Daniel Jones, which is really open up the vertical passing attack and, and let that arm talent and let these weapons free. So uh, it's, again, it's the same kind of argument with Daniel Jones of chemistry. Yeah, that's going to be hard to establish and understanding terminology right off the bat for a new offense, all that kind of stuff. Uh, all that same stuff applies. But in terms of talent around him, um, skill set fits, and also just the fact that I believe in Shermer as a play caller. Uh, I think the arrow is firmly pointing up for Drew Locke, not as up as, as it is for Kyler, but uh, man, everything there is is looking pretty good. Yeah, if they light the match, this powder keg could absolutely go off because that offense has so much firepower in it. If Drew Locke can figure out how to f- effectively trigger what Pat Shermer wants him to do, this offense could score boatloads of points in a hurry. So going to be fun to watch. That entire division is going to be fun to watch. Um, Speaking of fun to watch, we're going to go on to um, 
last year's poster boy for fun to watch Gardner Minshew of the Jacksonville <laughs> Jaguars um an unexpected story out of Washington State late round pick everybody thought Nick Foles was going to be the man of the hour in Jacksonville that didn't last very long Minshew came in and lit it up for the early part of the season um, very quickly with very little prep and, and first team reps, uh, came in and showed playmaking ability that Jacksonville really hasn't had in quite some time. And that was exciting for Jaguars fans and, and NFL fans in general. The old Minshew mania took off. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the later season in, in just a second. Uh, in terms of coaching stability, uh, the new offensive coordinator and QB coach Jay Gruden and Ben McAdoo. I wouldn't exactly call them a dream team, but they are capable NFL coaches. Um, and because Minshew did hit such highs in his first season and because he cooled off a little bit down the stretch, I'd expect a little natural statistical regression. Um, he really did cool off in those last five or six games, except for week 17 where they took on a Colts team that wasn't playing starters uh, but he had some rough outings as defensive coordinators really started to take away his favorite options but I still find it hard to bet against him he's just what I would call a gamer he is a classic gamer uh, surrounding cast Jacksonville is not short on receiving options and they added two good ones uh, in the draft this year as well so DJ Chark was uh, the breakout star last year, but also they've got D.D. Westbrook, Chris Conley, Terry Godwin. They added LaVisca Chenault and Colin Johnson uh, this year in the draft. Um, I'm, hope, I'm sure they're hoping Tyler Eford stays healthy at tight end. As far as running backs, uh, Jacksonville has a type, man. They love bruisers. <laughs> they have Leonard Fournette, Divina Zigbo. They added James Robinson from Illinois State. Uh, Ben Barch, who's a rookie that got a lot of buzz at the Senior Bowl, offensive lineman from St. John's, little old St. John's, um, could help out pretty quickly on a line that has very little star power. If you uh, page through, Jacksonville is one of those teams that lists everybody as OL. There is no center or OT or guard. It is just OL. Um, And there's not a lot of recognizable names on there. So Barch could be playing a role fairly quickly. That's the balance of what they have on offense. Certainly more loaded at uh, wide receiver than they are at other positions like tight end. But uh, certainly we saw that uh, Gardner Minshew didn't need a lot, and he has even more this year. In terms of familiarity with the system or the playbook, um, Jacksonville wasn't super tricky last year in what they presented. They tried to win with power running um, and winning one-on-one matchups, and when that fell through, they really relied on Minshew's creativity for when things broke down. I think that's a reflection of their head coach, Doug Marone. Um, Remains to be seen if the new duo open up the playbook any further in the second year um, with some additionally dynamic targets. We talked about this specifically with LaVisca Chenault before the draft. We really both hoped that he would end up in a place where they had a distinct plan for him because he is very good with the ball in his hands. He is a very good yards after catch creator. He is not great as a deep ball receiver down the field, but he is extremely powerful and quick. So they're going to have to look for that quick game, short passing tunnel screen type options to get Chenault the ball. And if they can do that and continue to have Chark run routes down the field, which he's excellent at, and D.D. Westbrook sort of stretched the seam, could be a very interesting offense. How do you see it shaping up down in Jacksonville? So Minshew is interesting because skill set wise, he's he's kind of similar to Daniel Jones in, in a lot of ways. Like he is just tough as nails, um, very very 
calm under pressure. I would I would say that he senses it better than Daniel Jones. Like Daniel Jones is not affected by pressure at all, which is a positive with him, but that's part of the, partly because he can't feel it. Gardner Minshew feels it, but he's still not affected by pressure. He's really good at keeping his eyes downfield. Believe it or not, his passer rating under pressure was 10th in the league out of all starting quarterbacks. Like he was higher than Rodgers, he was higher than Deshaun, Matt Ryan. He's gutsy. Yeah, he's gutsy. He's he's very calm under pressure, which is part of the reason why he was productive under pressure. Now, um, I will say that he he wasn't pressured as often as Daniel Jones. Like his pressure dropbacks was pretty low. I think it was like in the 30s. I want to say of among quarterbacks. Like um, he he what he wasn't pressured as as often. But when he was pressured, I would say he was better. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, but he also had a lot of the accuracy problems that Daniel Jones had, but in a different part of the field. His deep accuracy was actually pretty damn good. His short to intermediate accuracy was very spotty. So again, it's it's similar problems to Daniel Jones, but not quite the same. Um, now, he, he doesn't have the athleticism of Jones, but I think he's, his feet are quicker in the pocket. Um, his arm probably isn't quite as good as Daniel Jones, but it's enough. I think when you look at him, you see a capable starting quarterback maybe not a great one but a capable one but for where he was picked in the draft that's still a home run I mean relatively speaking if you're getting a guy that you know you can win games with in on day three so I think there are some limitations to him physically uh there are some limitations to him in terms of really working the quick game I I think he's oddly more comfortable just kind of navigating messy pockets and chucking it deep to DJ Chark. Like that kind of seemed to be where his comfort zone was and especially working off play action as well. Um, so he, he's the opposite of DJ in that way in, in that you're not going to be spreading it out empty and saying, okay, Gardner, go, go win that way. So there are some limitations schematically speaking, but I think Jay Gruden um, recognizes that. And I think we are going to see him prioritize, you know, heavy play action, you know, stretching uh, defenses vertically off play action. And then when it comes to the quick game, it'll probably be more like screen oriented and that kind of stuff, not like going empty and finding matchups. That's not really a strength. So I think there's a lot to like about Minshew. Do I think he's the answer long term? I don't know if I'd say that. But again, for the for the low draft pick investment and the fact that he's dirt cheap contract wise, uh, he's one of the better values at quarterback right now uh, across the league. Absolutely. And fun to watch. I, you know, I said statistical regression and that's a numbers thing. He did cool off in the second part of the year. We'll see if it turns into a full-blown sophomore slump or if he absolutely bounces back with a new system, comes back energized. And, you know, as the established leader of this offense now, which is a different position than he went through the off season last year, um, it'll be fascinating to watch Gardner Minshew, certainly rooting for him, uh, exciting player and, you know, exciting offensive weapons in Jacksonville. They've got a load of them. Be interesting to see if they can sort of use them all and, and maximize their capabilities. That brings us to Dwayne Haskins of the Washington football team. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as coaching stability goes, new coaching staff rolls into town led by Ron Rivera. Haskins showed some real improvement in the last six games of last year, so it was kind of the opposite of Gardner Minshew. He started to come on. He started to look like that quarterback that was starting to get it. 
the game was starting to slow down. He was starting to hit more of his first and second reads. But he's going to have to start over a little bit with Rivera and his staff, new terminology. In a shortened offseason, that's going to be tough. It would be tough on anybody. So the new OC is Scott Turner. It's Norv Turner's son. And Ken Zampezi, the long-tenured Ken Zampezi, is the quarterback's coach. They're going to have to do the heavy lifting with Haskins. And again, try and take what worked from last year and save that and add their new wrinkles and terminology in to sort of um, see if they can lift Haskins to even greater heights. The surrounding cast, Terry McLaurin's a stud, and Haskins started to form a real bond with him last season. That was super fun to watch. Um, Terry McLaurin, in my opinion, is a budding superstar. Um, I'm hoping he gets into an offensive system, whether it's in Washington or somewhere else, where he has some stability and can really show off because he is full of tools and technique. After that, the wide receiver core is uncertain, uh, and rookie Antonio Gandy-Golden has a I'm sorry, I got to do it. A golden opportunity to get serious playing time in the second year because Kelvin Harmon, uh, (laughs) their second year wide receiver, got injured. So he is already on IR. Um, So uh, Ganny Golden, we've talked about it before, but Washington's wide receiver court is full of guys. None of them really stand out. Ganny Golden looked pretty good at the Senior Bowl. He's got a great chance to earn some playing time fairly quickly. Um, As far as the backfield goes, boy, Washington likes collecting backs. Adrian Peterson, Darius Geis, Antonio Gibsons from this year's draft, Peyton Barber, who's underrated, and Bryce Love, who now two years removed from his very serious knee injury, might be the deepest backfield in the NFL. That's five guys right there that can run the rock. Um, It's probably going to be tight end by committee in Washington. There's some talent there. Uh, they've got uh, Richard Rodgers, Sprinkle, and Moss. Um, none of them are going to be dominant. All of them could find a role. And then re- rookie Shadiq Charles from LSU is probably going to start at midseason in the offensive tackle spot and round out what is a solid line with a couple of high-end players, uh, Morgan Moses and Brandon Scherf, and a couple of midline players in Rulier and Martin at center and guard. Um, familiarity with the system and playbook, we're not really sure. We were talking about this before the show. And we don't know what Scott Turner is going to be. Yeah, you can say his dad's Norv Turner and, oh, he's going to have those tendencies. But Scott's his own guy. Um, He has, uh, you can say what you want about nepotism, but he's carved his own path, spent some time at a bunch of different football destinations before landing as Ron Rivera's OC. So we're not exactly sure what he brings, how much they're going to keep, how much is going to be new. So I think it's just a, it's kind of like that college class where you didn't turn in the last paper and you get the incomplete grade. We're not really sure about familiarity with the system, but what do you think about Haskins and Washington in year two? So... He, he, how do I say this diplomatically? He had a shit situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was, it was rough. It was rough because when you look at his first, I guess you could call it three games of playing time, uh, he got thrown in against the Giants, totally unprepared by a coach who didn't even like him or want him. Uh, And he, he was awful. He was flat out awful. Uh, And this was like in the first Four weeks of the season, I think it was. Uh, it was like week four or something in the Giants game where he got thrown into it, wasn't ready, uh, got picked off three times. Uh, and then he didn't play for a month, and then he came in in the second half against Mike Zimmer's Vikings on the road. Second half coming off the bench. It's like, what do you what do you want from the kid, you know? Again, he wasn't ready. And so then he, he actually gets a full week of starters reps, he gets his first start in week nine. You know who it was against? The Bills. 
in Buffalo. Like, come on. Like, he was not set up for success. So then they get a bye week. He gets to play against the Jets. He plays better, um, much more efficient. Still threw a pick. Uh, It was a bad pick, too, but uh, more efficient. And then he started to get more comfortable. You know, he goes against the Lions defense, who just couldn't cover a a twin mattress with a king-size sheet. So he played a little bit better in that game. And then in the last four weeks, you know, after he had gotten three games of of starting experience, he started to kind of acclimate. Uh, You know, Gruden was gone by then, so he had a coaching staff that actually wanted to work with him. Even though it was interim, they were a little bit more committed to his development. Uh, He was more buckled down and focused, and you started to see the Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State. You know, having the timing with his receivers, just unleashing some beautiful balls deep down the field, even under pressure. Um, And starting in that Carolina game in Week 13, that was the Dwayne Haskins that I expected to see. Again, it wasn't perfect. I felt he was a little bit too safe at times, and I, I really wanted to, similar to Drew Locke, I wanted to see him open it up. Um, but we started to see him really get it and and start to see coverages and uh, do some things that, honestly, some of the other quarterbacks in this class weren't doing. You know, Drew Locke was not good at looking for hang defenders deep down the field, and he was throwing some balls that he really shouldn't have. Same thing with Daniel Jones. He was not really recognizing zone coverage that well, uh, whereas Haskins was towards the end of the year. Um, and he, again, he didn't have the weapons. The other guys did. He didn't have the coaching staff. The other guys did, but he was honestly playing very, very well. And it kind of culminated in, uh, the giants game in week 16, playing against the same team that he was horrible against in week four, you know, having film of himself in that game that he could go back and look at and understand their defense better and understand the mistakes he was making. And then he went in and lit them up. You know, he, he played extremely well. Two touchdowns, no picks, which I know isn't great, but for, for a quarterback that, um, you know, was kind of thrown into an awful situation, the fact that he was able to go out there and be efficient and have like nine yards per attempt and two touchdowns and not turn the ball over and, uh, you know, have a, a, a quarterback rating in like the 140s, if I remember correctly, like that was an excellent game. And it really showed like, hey, this kid knows what he's doing. You know, he's able to see the field. He's able to navigate tough pockets. He's able to make really awesome throws deep down the field. So I, I think when you take the entire context of the season into account and you uh, kind of look at the skill set that we know he has, and then you look at the talent that you mentioned, um, I, I think the arrow is firmly pointing up for Dwayne Haskins. Again, it's not the same level of up as up as Kyler, which we said in the beginning, like Kyler is the dude in this class, but I think um, we're going to see drastic improvement. I think we're going to see Washington have an actual, real, honest-to-God quarterback for the first time since uh, a while, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think when when you look at some of the weapons they're surrounding them with, like, there's a core of talent here to get excited about. There really is, um, and I, I think it's kind of up to uh, Scott Turner to kind of unlock that and and, and show what he's made of, but the, the talent is there, and the quarterback is there, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens, because the, everything, I think, is is lining up for a massive, massive improvement for Washington's offense this season. Yeah, they do seem primed to take a jump, even though it is a new staff, and there is always that sort of adoption period. 
Um, they seem like one of those teams that could perform a little bit more like Green Bay did last year after a new coaching staff came in coming out of the gate fairly hot. And I know that sounds strange because it sounds like I'm comparing Aaron Rodgers to Dwayne Haskins, and I'm not. But I do like Haskins and his prospects. And again, he did show a really marked improvement at the end of last year, like noticeable, the kind that makes you sit up late in the season when you're looking for those teams that are really playing hard down the stretch. They might not have had the best luck for the whole year, sort of setting themselves up. And we often see those teams take a jump in the next year. And I know it is a very strange year. COVID has turned things upside down, offensive uh, changes, the coaching staff changes. There's a lot of things that could work against Haskins in Washington, uh, but I'm betting on him. I liked him coming out of college. I think he's got a chance to maximize him. All right. You love lists. I'm not so fond of lists. We had some fun with lists the last episode. If you had to rank these situations, so not these quarterbacks, but the whole ball of wax, oh, the man. surrounding cast, the coaching staff, and the quarterback, all is one. You've got to take it as one ball. That's a ping pong ball per, let's just call it situation, per team. Who's on top in this list? Uh, Denver. I would, okay. I would say Denver and then Arizona. Okay. Uh, and then it gets interesting. Uh, this is where this is where the brass tacks come. I think it's tough. pretty clear that Denver and Arizona, you can flip-flop them depending on what you think is more important, whether it's coaching stability or whether it's offensive surrounding talent. Um, there, there are sort of pros and cons for both, but it's pretty clear uh, that Denver and Arizona are in the best two situations. You can rank them however you like. Then it gets really interesting. Then we get down to, okay, well, now we've got to start looking at the minuses as much as we start looking at the pluses. And what we have left is Daniel Jones in New York, Gardner Minshew in Jacksonville, and Dwayne Haskins in Washington. Three very different situations, but who are you taking in the third spot? Oh, man. I at Number three, I got to go Washington. I, I know it sounds weird. I, I know think it does it, just because they were such a dumpster fire last year, but I, I like Haskins a lot. Uh, I like scary Terry a lot. I like Antonio candy golden a lot. I like the running backs a lot. Offensive line is eh, but better than Jacksonville's. <laughs> yeah. Well in, in, in spots, in spots. Uh, I love Ron Rivera again. Is he a, like an elite head coach? No, but he's a good head coach. Like he's just, that's what they need right now. They just need a good stable head coach. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like Jack Del Rio as a as a coach, uh, but and we'll see what Scott Turner brings. But Ron Rivera, I at least can can run a tight ship, and I think the quarterback's really talented. They have some weapons. Like there's, I, I'm, and again, this is not me saying it's a great situation right now. But when I look at some of the stuff that's surrounding Gardner Minshew, you know, we got DJ Chark, who I think is really really good. We got Lavisca, who I think can be really good, but we're not sure. Um, you know, DD I think is good in spots, but durability is a concern. Uh, durability is a concern with Conley as well. Um, Keelan Cole, I think is a good number three, but again, it's like, no, we're not talking anywhere near, uh, like none of those guys are McLaurin, you know, none of those guys are anybody on, on Denver, or obviously not even close to Arizona either. So it's, it's still a bottom third receiving core as it stands right now, in my opinion, um, Fournette is, I, I loved him a lot coming at LSU, but uh, he's not McCaffrey. 
you know, he's not like an elite running no. back in my opinion. I, I think he is what he is, and and that's he a is what he is, and, it, and it, it can be good and solid, and he can work in the system Marone wants to run. Um, but I'm with you; he's not dynamic, and for the most part, he is not a guy that's going to take over games or really change games. Yeah, um, he can get tough yards, he can grind them out, he can be very uh, punishing physically. Um, and he can he can grind things out late in the game. That's yeah. what Marone wants, I, and that's I would, what he can do. Uh, I would honestly put Jacksonville at fifth, and I'd probably put the Giants at fourth. Oh, that was what I was going to say. Is so how do we how do we sort out these last two spots? Because I I truly and, do like a lot of what the Giants have going for them, especially with the offensive line additions. I think their weapons aren't awful. Like, you know, you got Saquon, who's a top three running back at worst. I think, you know, I love Sterling Shepard. Golden's still got a little bit of juice left. I like Darius Slayton. Ingram, when he's healthy, I think can be an effective weapon. Like, there's there's something there. I don't know what the hell to expect from Jason Garrett and Joe Judge, but uh, in terms of pure talent, and I also think Daniel Jones, um, in the end, will probably end up being a bit better than Minshew. Not saying that, like, they're vastly different, but... Um, and neither one of them, I think, are is going to be as good as Locke or, or Kyler. But I, if I had to choose between those two quarterbacks, I would still take DJ at, as it stands right now. So, uh, again, do I think that either of these teams are, like, above the bottom third in the NFL? No. But if I had to rank them purely in order, uh, it's Denver, Arizona, uh, Washington, New York, Jacksonville. Interesting. Cool. Not at all the way I think I probably would have put it up there, but I understand your reasoning. And well, what I would you have done? Argue. Um, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think Denver first uh, because, boy, it's there's just so yeah. many pieces there. Um, there's so many pieces of offensive skill players. The line, like you said, is really solid, especially in the middle, which is great for a young quarterback. Um, the coaching talent is sort of off the charts in terms of experience um Vic is going to be finding his way as as the head guy even more so and again if everything clicks they could be sort of off the charts so I would say them first Arizona second and then it gets really interesting it's do you value the quarterback more or the overall situation more um if I'm just picking out of the three quarterbacks Haskins absolutely comes in before uh probably Minshew and Jones for me um, but again, you got to look at what's surrounding them uh, and whether or not they're going to be able to use it. And I'm, I'm less sure of Jacksonville's ability to use what they have. Um, I really like the offensive line upgrades for the Giants. I think that's a big step up for them. Um, certainly fits right in their GM's roundhouse. And, you know, frankly, he killed it. We loved that piece of the draft. Their offensive line better. Their wide receivers I'm with you. I really like Shepard, and I think Tate can still be valuable. A um, couple of receivers behind that, uh, Slayton, and I think Mac is going to be really interesting in that sort of Edelman role if he gets any snaps there. Uh, and Evan Ingram is is a guy that can stretch and be dynamic, and and there's not really a guy like that in in Washington or Jacksonville. So it's just really interesting to balance. Uh, you know, again, if I was going straight on the quarterback, it would be Haskins, probably for me, Minshew and Jones, although those two are really close. Um, looking at the whole, looking at the whole kit and caboodle, uh, I don't know. Those three are really difficult to pencil. I might go, oh man, 
I know you want to do New York. You're, you're trying. You, I do. You, I know what you I do. really want to do. What I really want to do as a team builder is take this section from this team and put them <laughs> over here, and take this section from this team and put them over here, and then look because man, it, if this was Legos, you could build a really cool set, right? There's great parts of all those teams, and it's just really interesting to see as a sum total, which is the way I posed it to you, right? The whole ball of wax. Who do you really sit with? Um, uh, I don't know. I maybe uh, it's hard to put Jacksonville at the end with Minshew because he's such a wild card. But I could definitely see, uh, just like you did, going with Washington on the strength of Ron Rivera being a solid coach, Haskin being the quarterback with the arrow pointing the most up. He's got a very solid backfield to choose from, and as long as McLaurin can stay healthy, he's got somebody to throw to. So. I might go Washington in the same spot you did, and then it really is, you know, what do you believe more, the Giants or Jacksonville? Flip a coin. And, um, yeah, it's it's really cl- – I think that's the, the fairest thing to say is, although Daniel Jones and Minshew are two different guys, like you said, they share similarities. And for one area where you can point at a strength, like Saquon Barkley, and say, look, they've got a game-changing running back, both in the running game and the passing game, Okay, Fournette's not so great. Oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, the offensive line in New York is a lot better than the offensive line in Jacksonville after the draft. So you just go back and forth in terms of I'd probably put the Giants above Jacksonville. Um, But, again, if I'm picking quarterbacks, it might be Minshew above Jones by a hair because they have different strengths. Just a fascinating exercise. So thanks for ranking those out for me. I really appreciate it. And I encourage you guys Um, to, that you're listening, also, you know, go down in the comments, leave yours, because I'm very curious to see what other people say and maybe other people think that arizona is the top one so leave leave your rankings in the comments because i'm very curious to see that yeah i mean there are i don't think there are any right answers here i think it's easily fair to say that you could see this from a lot of different perspectives and we're really interested to see what your perspectives are and what you weight more heavily or or maybe some connections we missed between uh you know talent on offense or or maybe even how you think the defense is going to set up the offense we didn't even get into that so um as always football is is a really fun chess match to to sort of pick apart and pull back the layers of the onion so feel free to do that in the comments um, you got anything else for this week, partner? Or are we gonna roll out of here? No, I'm I'm about ready to to finish down in this Balvini and uh, get off to bed because uh, usually Balvini puts me to sleep pretty quick. Not gonna lie, so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to get out of here and uh, and hope that we uh, once again hope that we just get an actual football season to talk about in a couple weeks. Here, training camp proper is about to start up. Uh, was it next week? I think is when teams are. Uh, Bears are already there, so yeah. I don't know what the Texans are doing, but yeah, Chicago's already started. Not not much media coverage, but they are there. They're going through in shells. Um, so yeah, as weird as it is to think a year ago I was in in Bourbonnais, Illinois, uh, watching training camp and what would be the Bears' last training camp in Bourbonnais, and that actually has nothing to do with COVID. They announced the the full-time switch to the improved facilities at Hallis Hall, which was going to be a change anyways, but just super glad that I ended up uh, taking a week of vacation and going and standing in the cornfields in Bourbonnais and, and watching that because it was a lot of fun and it's not going to happen again. So moment in time and, and take those opportunities when you get them, folks, because you just don't know if you're going to get them again. And uh, yeah, training camp, as as such as it is, will be firing up all across the league here. Uh, today was the deadline to declare, so we shouldn't see any more uh, 
COVID opt-outs. Um, 4 p.m. today was the deadline for that. So we'll continue to watch all these stories, the college one we talked about at the top of the show, and, of course, how all these quarterbacks and offensive teams mesh. Um, got some great content coming for you uh, throughout the rest of the summer. We've got some fun logo projects in the works as well. We'll keep you updated, up to date on those. Follow us on uh, Twitter for the most part. Brett's got his Twitter follow. You can, of course, follow the Film Room on YouTube. Make sure to drop a like and subscribe on the Bootleg Football Podcast on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at the Draftsman FB, as in football. And until then... Uh, Keep your heads down, uh, pray for football season, and uh, stay safe. We will talk to you soon. And wear your goddamn mask. Yes, do that. Two if you have to. All right, we'll see you soon, folks. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.